want to welcome you this morning, Bay Hills. Before you have a seat, why don't you turn to your neighbor, say good morning, Merry Christmas. Go ahead. Good morning, Bay Hills. It's great to see you guys. Hope you're doing well. We are wrapping up our series, uh, The Thrill of Hope. We've been in it here for our month of December, our Christmas series. And uh, we've basically been saying there, there's five ways that you can increase your hope count, your hope quotient. And uh, so far, we've covered three. Just real quickly, we're going to review the, the three that we've covered so far. So number one, the first way you increase your hope is by recharging your batteries, Recharging your batteries. Who you see on the screen, his name is actually Colonel William Pogue, and he is famous for a number of things. One is that he was, at the time, the, one of the astronauts that spent the most time in space on a mission with NASA. It was in 1974, and he was on, at the time, an 84-day mission, which was one of the longest ever and, uh, he, but he's also famous for what he did while he was in space, while he was on that mission. At one point in time, he sent uh, a, a communication to headquarters in NASA, and here's what he said. He said, quote, we are overworked, we're overscheduled, we're hustling all day long. And then he said this, he said, we need some time to just rest, sit, and look at the view from our window. That's what he said. NASA responded and said, absolutely not. We, we have you there for a limited amount of time. We need you working. When you get back, then you can take a nap and rest. Now, it's at this point, what, what, what Colonel Pogue did at this point that makes him famous. He decided to go on strike. <laughs> he went on strike. He decided to stop working. And for like 24 hours, uh, he, he just basically did nothing and headquarters at NASA had to go back and forth, and, and finally they came to a compromise where they gave them windows of time where they could rest and sit and do nothing. Now, I, I mentioned this to you because some of you need to put your foot down and take drastic measures when it comes to your rhythm. I have now brought this up for three weeks in a row, and still some of you are running at a frantic pace. You cannot be a hope-filled person if you're constantly tired you got to figure that out. And I get it. Accountants are crazy busy at tax season, and you might be crazy busy at that season. But, but for the most part, we have to get into a rhythm of work and rest, work and rest, work and rest. Second way we renew our hope is by refocusing our future. So you have to not only refocus on your future, right, but you have to put a new pair of lenses on, and you have to understand that what God has ahead of you is wonderful. He has a great plan in store for you. If you're a track and field person, you might recognize the image that's on the screen, or, or at the very least, you know the story. You've, you've heard of it. Uh, you have two runners on the screen. One was a British and English runner by the name of Roger Bannister. The other was an Australian by the name of John Landy. And at the time, in the 1950s, they were the best athletes, best runners when it comes to the one-mile race. Uh, at the time, of course, they're not, in the 1950s, they're not flying all over the place for for meets and such. And so uh, the news would happen where, where Bannister would break the record uh, in Europe and then Landy would break the record in Australia and then Bannister and they went back and forth basically breaking each other's record. And then finally in August of 1954, they both met at the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada. And the um, reporters were dubbing the race as the Miracle Mile 
the dream race, as these two great runners were going to finally meet and go head to head. And as the story is told, they, they began to run. And immediately they left, the, they left the rest of the pack behind them and they were neck and neck the whole way. And as they made that last turn down the stretch run, the Australian Landy was ahead. And it looked like he was going to win. Until he did what every track and field coach will tell you, don't ever do this. He looked back. You see it on the screen. Not only did he glance back and look over his shoulder to see where Bannister was, but just by fortune, it, it, it turned out that Bannister was on the opposite side, and so he, he almost made a full turn until he finally realized what was happening, and it was at that moment he slowed down so much that Bannister overtook him on his right, and he won the race. Guys, what is true of track and field is also true of life. If you spend too much time looking into the rearview mirror of your life, whether it's your past successes or your past failures, it's going to slow you down and keeping you from accomplishing what God has in your tomorrow. You have to stop looking at the rearview mirror and start looking at the windshield through life and understand that God's future for you is promising and it's exciting. So the third thing we talked about, we spent an entire week talking about the third way to renew your hope is you have to remember who you serve. It's not that we literally forget God, but practically we live our lives as if we've forgotten. And we spent this whole week saying we got, you got to rest and lean into his character. You have to remember his principles and his attributes and what they mean to you and to me. Romans chapter 15, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says this, May the God of hope, that's what we've been talking about for four weeks, a God who is here to give you and fill you with hope. May the God of hope fill you. And in this particular verse, Paul identifies three things he wants to fill you with. He wants to fill you with joy. He wants to fill you with peace. And he wants to fill you, third, with hope. Now, I'm going to ask you three questions. I want you to very quickly do a self-assessment on yourself. I'm going to ask you, your gas tank, how much does it have in it of one or the other? And you just be honest with yourself, okay? Question number one. In your gas tank, how much joy do you have? How much sadness do you have? Second question. Are you more the person that's filled with peace about what's going on in life? Or are you more the person that's filled with worry and anxiety about what's going on in life? Question number three. Are you the kind of person that is more positive and hopeful about tomorrow? Or are you more the kind of person that is filled with negativity about tomorrow? Now, now, if you answered that question honestly, those questions honestly, and you find yourself in a situation saying, you know what, I, I guess my life is dominated and controlled by sadness or worry or negativism. If you find yourself in that lane, the, the very simple reason and answer for why you're experiencing that is because you're not leaning into God enough. You're, you're, not, you're not resting on his promises enough. You're not remembering his character enough. You have to remember who it is that we follow and serve. So, number one, you want hope. Number one, you need to recharge your batteries. Number two, you need to refocus your future. And number three, you have to remember your God and who you serve. Principle number four and five we're going to couple today. Number four is this, jot it down. You need to refuse to go it alone. Life was never intended for us to run the race of life by ourselves. Now, we're not by ourselves this morning, but you know, understand what I mean. Emotionally and relationally and spiritually, God intended us to be interconnected with other people, to be able to lean and depend on them and for them to lean and depend 
on us. The Apostle Paul begins the book of Philippians writing from a prison cell in Rome. He had gone to Rome in order to preach the gospel and found himself wrongly imprisoned in Rome. And it's, you know, if you're wrongly imprisoned, I would imagine, I know I would feel a little frustrated, a little bit disappointed and discouraged. And yet the book of Philippians is one of the most hope and joy-filled books that we have in the Bible. And he begins speaking speaking to the church of Philippi, and here's what he says. He says this, he says, I, I, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And I'm thinking, really? You're thinking about the entire church of Philippi and you can't think of one person that drives you a little crazy? He's like, no, no, you get I, I'm thinking about the corporate group that is the church of Philippi. And when I think of the church of Philippi, I am thankful for all of you every time all the time. Why? How can he say this? Well, well, notice what he says. He's not saying that there aren't difficult people at the church of Philippi. No, he's talking about the role that they have each with each other. Why do I feel this way? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you because whether I'm wrongly imprisoned in chains or I'm preaching and defending and confirming the gospel, you all share in God's grace with me. This is Paul saying to the church of Philippi, I can't do it without you. I'm gallivanting all over Asia Minor and preaching the gospel and planting churches and leading people to Christ. I could not do it without your support, without your prayers, and in their case, without their financial encouragement. That's what he's saying. I, I hope you know Make no mistake about it. Bay Hills is not about Pastor Dave getting up on a weekly basis and doing his little sermon talk. Bay Hills works only if we collectively work as a team. We all might have different roles, but make no mistake about it, that's the emphasis that Paul is making here. Life was never intended to be lived alone, ever. Someone has said, even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. Now, I would encourage an upgrade from that, but even he had that. Now, guys, this is a problem. There, there's a, a book that I bumped across called Bowling Alone, which is a very clever title because most of us, when we bowl, we kind of want to go with other people. You know, high, high five when they, when they get a strike and laugh at them when they get a gutter ball. Or that's, what, that's fun to hang out with your friends. And he writes this book. It's a, he's a Harvard, Harvard business author, and it's entitled... The, uh, the bowling alone, and he talks about the collapse of community and friendship in the United States of America. I've given you some of the statistics. Playing cards with friends is down 21%. Evening with neighbors is down 33%. Family dinners is down 34%. We would prefer to sit in front of the TV and watch whatever show instead of sit around the table and talk to each other. Having friends over is down 45%. of Americans have no one to confide in. No one to lean into and to be vulnerable with. And the average American has only two close friends. Now, I want to lean into this last one. I want to help you understand that there are different types and levels of friendships. Uh, because, and you have, to, you have to have all of them, but these last, the last two are the most important. Let me show you what I mean. It's in your study guide. I also have it for you on the screen. You, you have friends that are called acquaintances. These are, these are friends of location. Some of us are friends of acquaintance because on a weekly basis, on Sunday morning, we go to Bay Hills and we sit and we go to church together. 
and we recognize each other. If we bumped into each other at the supermarket, we'd, we'd recognize each other. We might not know each other's names, which, by the way, is why we have name tags and try and help us connect. But we, we, we are at the same location, right? The second level of friendship is casual friends, friends of activity. So this is when you work together. This is when your kids are on the same volleyball, soccer or, or team together. This is, this is when you go to the exercise, you know, to the gym, and you're in the same Pilates class together, right? And you're doing things, you're golf together. You're doing things together, so it's more than just, just acquaintances. You at least know their name, you hang out with them, you do things with them. But it's the last two that really speak of genuine community, because all of them count as friends. You've got close friends. This is friends of personal information, personal information. These are people who know what's going on in your life. Have you ever found yourself during donut bagel hour over there, and, and you're, doing, you're doing your thing, and you're eating your bagel, and someone comes up to you, hey, what's going on? And they say this, how you doing? And you say, doing good, how you doing? Have you ever done that and actually not be speaking the truth? Because something is going on in your life. Do you know why we say that? Because sometimes it's just awkward there. To, to, to spill your guts. I get that. But sometimes the answer is, I don't know you. you you're, you're at a casual friend level. I, I, I'm not going to start spilling my guts to you because we're not at that level yet. In fact, let's flip it. Have you ever had someone else start sharing personal information with you and you're like, I don't know you. What the heck? Why? This is making me very uncomfortable. You go over there and I will go over here. Because instinctively, you know, I don't know you well enough to you be sharing this kind of vulnerable personal information. There, it's not rocket science. It just takes time, and you've got to intentionally move down these levels. And then finally, you have deep friendships. These are friends of connection. These are the friends that know something's wrong with you when even you don't say anything. What's up with you, girl? What's up with you, dude? Man? I, I could see it. Something's, for the last months, I can tell. These are friends that, of vulnerability where you will open up to them. These are friends that that genuinely, I mean, they genuinely rejoice with you when life's going good. They're not jealous. They, man, they are so happy for you. And they cry with you when things are bad. Now, here's what, I, here's what the book was talking about. The book is saying, we all have level one and level two. There's people all around us. The issue is level three and level four. We don't have close and deep friends, especially us guys. Because we will hang with each other and play hoops with each other and golf with each other and watch soccer with each other. At, but we don't go to like level three and four. Some of it's because of how we're hardwired, but that is not an excuse to not develop those kind of relationships. And, and, and it's one thing to read it from a Harvard's, Harvard business author in the book Bowling Alone, and it's other thing to see it in this book. You were not created to live life alone. You were, li- you were created to live in community with others. And all of these levels are important, but you especially better make sure you have level three and level four. You have to do that. If you look at your study, guys, what I want to do is I want to share with you six relationships that we all need. Let me go through them with you. First is we all need life models. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 the Apostle Paul says something. He's very interesting. He says, I want you to follow my example. I want you to imitate me. Live life how I live. Now, it would be weird for us to say that to someone else. It would feel presumptuous, right? Like, I'm not perfect. I don't want to say that, you know, and who, who am I to say that to you? But let's lean into it just a little bit. 
Can I give you a little trick on how to succeed in life? If you're a young couple and you just got married, you want to know how to, one of the ways to have a great marriage? Find someone else that has been married for 10, 15, 20 years that they seem to have a pretty good marriage. Watch them and copy them. If you're struggling with your finances, you want to know one way to improve? Find someone else who's doing well with their finances, not because they're making a ton of money, but just, boy, they're ha- watch what they're doing, ask them questions, and do what they do. You want to know how to get a promotion at work and how to do better in your career? Find someone who's cl- climbed the corporate ladder. Figure out what they're doing and do what they're doing. You want to know how to grow in your faith and become a spiritual giant? Find someone else who's already a spiritual giant and copy and do what they're doing. You see, it's one thing to have Pastor Dave give you all the intellectual information about how to live a hope-filled life, and then it's another thing to actually find someone that is flesh and blood, that is living it, and imitate them. Does that make sense? It's so important. Now, let me just take it one step further, and let me speak to those of you who are leaders in this church. And by leaders, I mean elders, board members, staff members, ministry leaders, small group leaders, and let me add all of you who've been following Jesus for quite some time now. Every one of you should be able to be a life model for someone else. Oh, no, no, I get it. None of us are perfect. But isn't that the point? That someone else that is not as far along in their spiritual journey can look at you and go, I need to live more like they live. Because you're... You're living your life according to this book. All of us should be at some point in time in a position where we can be a model for someone else. We we don't announce ourselves as that to them, but that is so important. We need them. We also need soul sharpeners. As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17. Henry Ford was the first one credited as saying, you want to know who my best friend is? My best friend is the person who brings out the best in me. We all have people that bring out the worst in us, don't we? We all do. Praise Jesus for them. (laughs) But how about people that bring out the best in us? Do you have someone like that? I mean, you're with them, and you're the very best of who you are when you're with them. You also need vision casters, people that help you dream big, people that help you understand that God has a vision for your life. To some extent, that's a role that I play in some of your lives. It's very important to have someone that's pointing you forward. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? There's a story that came out of Montana. A state trooper uh, pulled over a car at around 1.32 in the morning. It was filled with a bunch of 18 to 20-year-olds. And it was, it, it, he pulled it over, not because it was just 18 to 20-year-olds, but the car was swerving this way and that way. It was back and forth, herky-jerky. It was just a mess. He's like, something's going on. He pulled them over. And, uh, and sure enough, they had just come from a party. They were all drunk except for the driver. The driver was not drunk, but the driver had another condition that kind of made, up, made it problematic. The driver was blind. <laughs> I kid you not. And these buddies actually thought it was a better idea. We can't drive. We're drunk. Let's get Joey to drive, right? And they were hanging out the window, giving him instructions on the road as this poor guy, blind guy was driving. Speaking of blind, you see it on the screen, where there is no vision, where you cannot see, the people perish. Are you following the right person, right people, right leaders? 
Do you have people that are vision casting for you and dream building for you? You need those people in your life. Number one, you need life models. Number two, you need soul sharpeners. Number three, you need vision casters. Number four, you need butt kickers. Come on. They tell us that at any given time, one out of every five Americans is living dysfunctionally. One out of every five needs a good butt kicking. Can you think? On the count of three, we're going to point to who we think that is. One, no, we're not going to. Be honest. Every once in a while, you need someone to kick you upside the head. Stop whining. Stop complaining. Get to work. What are you doing? What are you saying? Now, sometimes, depending on who we are, we need someone that comes at us strong and hard and loud. Sometimes we need someone that comes at us soft and subtle. But we still, nevertheless, need a butt kicking. Let us consider, says Hebrews 10, let us consider how we may spur one another Another on to love and good deeds, it goes on to say. You know what a spur is in the English language. A spur is that little metal tool that cowboys will wear on their boot, on their heel. So while they're riding, they want to direct the horse one way or the other, they will get it with the spur. Some of us every once in a while need it. All of us at some point. You need someone that can speak into your life like that. Five, we need heart healers. The butt kicker drops us down a peg. You know what the heart healer does? The heart healer extends his hand when we fall off the horse, help picks us back up. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up in love. Do you have that person? We also need cheerleaders. What cheerleaders do at a football game or a basketball game That's what you need in life. They're on the sidelines of life, and they're just cheering you. Hey, you missed the shot, but nice try. Keep going. Keep trying. Keep fighting. You're going to get it next time. You can do it. We all need people like that, every single one of us. A story that touched my heart coming out of Colorado uh, is a story about a nine-year-old girl called Marlee Pack. Marlee, um, she, um, she was found to have a rare form of cancer. So they began treatment on her, and as, as is the case with a lot of the cancer treatments, she lost all of her hair. Losing your hair is already a little bit traumatic for an adult. For a nine-year-old girl, it, I can imagine it would be even harder. And when it came time that she was kind of ready to go back to school, and, and, and the doctors had given her the, the, the A-OK, and she was very self-conscious about how she looked. And her best friend, another nine-year-old in the class, decided, um, you know what, I'm going to shave my head to make my best friend feel normal. And, and, and it was what her best friend did. And, and as the school began to hear, Marley's coming back to school, that a chain of events happened at Meridian Elementary School in Broomfield, Colorado, where all 800 students and staff did the following. Let's put it on the screen. They all shaved their head. The campaign was called Be Bold, Go Bald. Some of you guys are like, I like that one. I don't want to write that one down. (laughs) Do, Do you have someone that cheerleads you? When you get knocked off the horse that's there to pick you back up again? 
So, so let me just summarize. Let's put the summary on of, of the six kind of people we need in our life. We need life models. We need soul sharpeners. We need vision casters. We need butt kickers. We need heart healers. And we need cheerleaders. Now, I guess what I want you to do is I want you to take the list home with you in your study guide and start writing names now to, next to each one of these and make sure you are, have a balanced relational support system. Let me also add, just real quickly, are, are you that for other people? Now, you might not be able to be all of them for other people because based upon your age, your experience, your knowledge, your stage of life, some, sometimes that, that speaks into what we're better at, but you, you understand that just like you need to lean on others, they need to lean on you. Does that make sense? The fifth way that you increase your hope count is you resist and you fight the greatest enemy of hope, discouragement. This past week... Um, Linda is her name, and she comes into the office every Thursday, and she helps put the notes together for you guys. And we spend a lot of time talking about whether I should put the thesis statement in for this point or not. It's not in your notes, because it was just too long. And, but, but I do want to mention to you how important it is, and it might be something you want to write down. Here, here's the thesis for this, this section right here. It's okay and normal for you to get discouraged. It's not okay for you to stay discouraged. Let me say it again, and then I'll unpack it. It is okay, and it's normal to occasionally get discouraged. It is not okay for you to stay discouraged. So let, let me unpack that a little bit. Every once in a while, you know, you'll, you might run into a Christian, right? And, and, um, and they'll give you this vibe. Well, I mean, God is good, right? God is great. You're filled with the joy of the Lord. Then quit being so discouraged and depressed and pick yourself up. And that's the vibe that they give you. And I'm like, yeah, I don't see that in Scripture. No, I know I get God is good and he's great and, and we have the joy of the Lord. But, but it's okay and normal to feel discouragement every once in a while. You want to know why? Because you're not a robot. God created you with emotions. And when there's disappointment in your life, when there's loss in your life, I expect you to be a little bu bummed out. In fact, there are times as a pastor when I am pastoring one of you in this church that has experienced loss you want can i tell you what really concerns me is when of, when some of you aren't bummed out when some of you don't cry because i'm like oh uh oh we got a problem because they are burying it they are burying their pain and it's going to pop up later it is healthy at times to be discouraged does that make sense it is okay and normal however you don't want to stay there why? Look at the screen. Look at that verse. Because we have a God that heals the brokenhearted. Let's, let's use physical terms because this might help us. So three months ago, I busted up my leg, right? Three months ago, month one, I was in a wheelchair. I couldn't put pants on because it hurt so much. I couldn't put a sock on in a wheelchair. Month number two, I was in crutches, Today, month number three, I'm walking. Now, some of you have been asking me, how's your leg? It's actually, it doesn't hurt, but it's still very stiff. I'm still having to work that out in physical therapy and such. But here's, here's what I want to ask you, right? I'm walking. Most of you, if you didn't even know that I had a leg injury, you, wouldn't, you couldn't tell. Here's what I'm asking. Would it be appropriate if this morning I had hopped out here on crutches? Well, uh, you, you seem fine. Why, why would you come out on crutches? 
You see, some of you do that in your, yeah, see, right here, Kathy talked a little too soon. That's okay, Kurt. I love you, Kathy. <laughs> Guys, some of, us, some of us do that emotionally. Look it. When something goes wrong in life, you might start out in a wheelchair. And then eventually you'll transition to crutches. And then eventually, watch, you will walk and people can't tell that there's still a little stiffness in your heart, but you are. And my point is this, it's okay to be, and it's normal to get discouraged, it's not okay to stay there. you got to give it some time, and you have to lean into the process that God gives you to bounce back, all right? Because you have to get to be that person again that lives with hope. At the risk of oversimplifying it for my counseling therapist friends, I know that I'm oversimplifying it, but really quickly, let me give you the progression of how things work. Something happens that you don't like and that you don't want and that is hurtful and you experience disappointment, I'm sad. Now, depending on how big it is, some of us might transition to I'm discouraged, I'm struggling. If it was several bad things in a row or one huge thing that happened, I'm depressed and I'm sinking. They are are distinct, but all sort of kind of the same. His name was Edwin Cole. He was founder of the Christian Men Network, and he said this, as, as it refers to what you see on the screen. You don't drown by falling in the water. You drown by staying in the water. I want to share with you five things about discouragement that you need to understand. Number one is that discouragement is a universal emotion. So every once in a while, someone will say something to me, and I really don't believe them. So like if I have a couple, a married couple that comes up to me and say, yeah, pastor, we never argue, we never fight. I don't believe them. Either one of them's lying or one of them's dead. (laughs) Because every marriage I know, every, every once in a while, you will squabble. Okay? You know what I also don't believe? When someone comes to me and say, I never get discouraged. I don't believe you. Now, I believe that some of you don't know what you're feeling on the inside. But here's, here's what I know. Life is good, and then it's not so good. And then life is good, and then it's not so good. And when it's not so good, guess what? It's normal for you to experience disappointment and discouragement. You might call it someone, something else, but that's normal. And, and we, we all express it differently, and we all try to get rid of it differently. Some of us try to eat our way out of discouragement. Some of us try and work our way out of discouragement. Some of, of us try and spend money out of discouragement. Some of us go to the prayer room out of discouragement. We all do different things. We might call it different things, but what I need you to understand is that discouragement is a universal emotion. We all get it. Second of all, discouragement is a recurring emotion. See, it's not like chicken pox. You get chicken pox once, and you essentially never get it again. Discouragement is more like the flu or the common cold. Some of us get it really, really bad, and some of us not so bad. But it it keeps coming back every so often. keeps coming back. It's how life works. Discouragement is also a contagious emotion. Have you noticed when you spend time with positive, happy people you leave their presence with a little skip in your step? Have you noticed that? You're floating a little bit? Have you also noticed when you hang around negative, pessimistic people, you leave and want to start drinking and take a nap? (laughs) Do you know why that is? (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Because we rub off on each other. That's what I'm saying. We rub off on each other. We're contagious. 
Now, on a serious note, though, remember we were talking about friends? If I have a close friend and you're hurting, guess what I start doing? I start hurting. That's what friendship is. See how this all interacts? Discouragement is a destructive emotion. Um, remember, it's okay to get discouraged. It's not okay to stay discouraged. And here's what I need you to understand. If you choose to stay discouraged, if you choose to live with pessimism and negativity, if you accept depression as a way of life, I'm here to tell you, listen to me very carefully. At some point in time, it will negatively impact your friendships, your marriage, your career, your finances, and your spiritual walk. Guaranteed. And that's why I'm saying, I know I get it. I get that you're bummed out. But I also need you to start fighting it, resisting, and moving the process in the direction of trying, trying to bounce back. Because discouragement is the enemy of hope. Finally, you need to understand that discouragement is a beatable emotion. Dr. Carl Menninger, a famous psychiatrist, was giving a lecture on mental health. And he was asked the question, what do I do if I, if I begin to experience a nervous breakdown? You want to know what he said? Here's what he said. Get off your couch, lock up your house, go across the railroad tracks, and find someone in need and help them. In other words, stop making life all about yourself. No, I get it that you're hurting. Want to heal? Start helping someone else. One of the things that I want to do as we wrap up is I want to lean into a psalm where one of the heroes of the faith, David, is bummed out. And it's not going to be an in-depth Bible study, but I'm going to show you how he progresses through these stages and give you a little something more to hang on to. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, David is down in the dumps. We don't know the context of Psalm 13, where either his, his son has revolted against him, thrown him out of the capital, and he's on the run, or he's hiding in a cave because Saul is chasing him. We don't know the historical context, but it's very clear that he's discouraged and depressed. And he begins in verse 1, Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long... Will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Some of you walked in here today and you're living verse 1 and 2 right now. You know, I didn't catch it till this morning. I'd studied this passage in preparation to share with you, but this morning, I always go over my notes and make sure I'm ready. And this morning, for the first time, I read Psalm 13 out loud. And it wasn't until I read it out loud that something struck me. It's a phrase he repeats four times. Normally, I catch this. Four times! How long is this going to go on, God? How long? And he's speaking to where some of us are at right now. I want you to notice something. When you're in a cave, one of the problems is we're not thinking straight. We're thinking with our, with our feelings and not with our head. Because did, did you notice the mistake he makes in this verse? It's, it, it's, it's intentional because he's trying to speak into us. God, how long are you going to forget me? Guys, you know that's not true. You know that. 
you, watch, you know it here, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it here, does it? He's down in the dumps. Now, in verse 3, he starts to transition ever so slightly, and he starts to bounce back. And you, no, you notice a clear, distinct change in, in verse 3. Oh, Lord, or, or turn, he says, and answer me, O oh Lord, my God. Restore the sparkle in my eye. If, I, if, if there's not a better poetic way to describe what hope is, restore the sparkle in my eye or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice by my downfall. When you're reading what commentators are saying about verse 3, they're saying, you know what? In, in verse 1 and 2, you know what he's really doing in verse 1 and 2? He's whining. He's complaining. He's wallowing in his problem. You want to know the distinct change that happens in verse 3? He really genuinely starts praying. Interestingly, we're heading into this 21 days of prayer. God, answer me. Restore me. And at some point in time, in your discouragement and depression, you got to get to this point. And he begins to think differently about what's going on. He's down in the dumps. He starts to bounce back. And then last two verses of the psalm, it's like he's standing on his feet. Verse 5 and verse 6. But I trust you. I love the way he starts that verse. But I have a problem. But I have a question. But I have an issue. But nevertheless, I will trust you. Oh, I don't like what's going on, but I'm going to trust you anyway. And you've got to get to that point. And when you get to that point, even though the problem is still there and the loss is still there, your heart is different. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. This is so interesting. Commentators actually believe that this is David prophetically praying about what he knows is going to happen in the future, but the problem is still with him. God hasn't literally rescued him yet, but David is prophetically looking into the future and knowing and understanding the God that I have and the God that I know and the God that I follow is not going to leave me in this cave. And I thank you in advance for where you're taking why? Well, I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Oh, no, there's bad things that happen to me. But clearly there's a distinction between the bad that happens to me and the good that God is for me. For four weeks now, I've been trying to encourage you to live as a person that is filled with hope. And I've been talking to you about five things. Let's put the summary slide up there. After first service, someone came up to me and said, Pastor, you know what you are? You're a hope dealer. And I was like, be careful how you say that. You don't pronounce that right. That might come out differently. Hope dealer. (laughs) Last time, five ways to live hopeful. Which one of these do you most need to do? Recharge your batteries. Refocus your future. Remember the God that you serve. Refuse to go it alone. Resist and fight discouragement. Whatever you pick, you got some homework. You got some work ahead of you. But don't let these last four weeks go to waste. Lean into it, and let's head into the next year as a more hopeful congregation, as a more hopeful follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've taught us. We thank you for this season. Of all the seasons that we have, of all the months in our calendar year, goodness gracious, as we reflect on the birth of your son, that alone should fill us with hope, spiritual hope for why you came and what you promised. So thankful, Father. We, we realize you didn't owe us a second chance. We don't deserve a second chance. And yet, through the person of Jesus Christ, we're privileged to receive a second chance. So thank you, Father, for that. Father, we're, we're going to forget a lot of what we heard over the last four weeks, and that's okay, as long as your Holy Spirit reminds us of the one or two things you really needed us to hear. Don't let us forget. Keep whispering to our soul and to our mind that one nugget, that one principle that we have got to fix so that we will represent you well, we will be more healthy individuals and live hope-filled lives. Thank you for your practical word. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. I realize... uh, Some of you are heading out for the holidays for Christmas. If you're not here this week, have a Merry Christmas. If you are here, try and make it for Christmas Eve. I think it'll be fun to to enjoy that together. Um, But uh, when you come back, I hope you have a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. Let's lean into the 21 days of prayer and make it work. I love you guys. Have a Happy New Year. Bye-bye.